Hey, everybody, time for another Shop Talk Show. Dave and I are going to talk about all kinds of stuff in this episode number 226. Things like, I don't know, are pixel values acceptable to use? Like when you're thinking horizontally and setting horizontal values in CSS, we're going to try and figure out HHVM. Should we be trying to run that? It seems like there's some pretty serious performance benefits there. Or are they? We're going to try and figure out, you know, uh, uh, just what is Pattern Lab and how do you use it and what are the values of it and what do you do at kind of at the end of your usage of Pattern Lab? We're going to talk about like what kind of ad networks are a good idea on a low traffic website. That and much more ahead for you on Chop Talk Show. I should mention that this show is brought to you in part by Media Temple. Have you heard of their grid hosting? One of their more popular plans. It's amazing. They have made it a little cheaper. They have even a $20 personal plan for grid that has tons of power, up to 100 websites. Even for $10 more, at $30 a month, you get 5x all of that, which is amazing. Thanks so much to Media Temple. We'll tell you more about those hosting plans later in the show. But for now, Mr. Dave, let's kick things off. Hey there, Shopamaniacs. You're listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Show. I'm Dave Rupert, and with me is Chris Coyer. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm doing super duper well. We are, uh, we're just gonna, uh, we're kind of in, I'd say we almost changed seasons at this point, where we had our little mini season there where we were doing um, two guests at a time, and we'll come back to that. We have a little pile of, um, of guests to potentially have on some ideas cooking, but for now we're kind of just we're in the throes of summer. We're sweating our way through yeah. some rapid fire, and it feels good to just talk with you, Dave, about about stuff. Well, it, it's nice. We'll call it season four point five or something. And it, and you know it, it's hard. It's we're busy. We're traveling. You know, people are traveling, so it's hard to get guests. You know, sometimes because because everyone's busy and moving around, and so. It's nice that we can get together, Chris, you, me, uh, a couple of, I, I think we're both drinking uh, Yardaritas right now, so we're just hanging out, <laughs> casual <laughs> casual Yardaritas, you know, at 10 a.m., so this is wonderful. I've picked out a wonderful. number of questions from our from our archives here. We're also, yeah, we're, we're switching up some infrastructural stuff. It's been fun, but anyway, I, I rooted up some, a little bit of old one. Like, this is a mixture of kind of old and new questions. Every question that's ever been asked to us on Shop Talk shows is still there. It's still in this kind of massive file. When, I, when I'm putting together a show like this, I just I go and I pick questions that have been submitted any time. So there's probably questions in here that were submitted years ago that we just didn't quite get to, uh, which is kind of fun. Uh, the only ones that we'd avoid are ones that just we've done too many times, which fall into the shoptalkshow.com slash FAQ page, uh, just because those are you know less interesting for you to hear us answer the same questions over and over. So this is an eclectic mix of questions. Let's get through as many of them as we possibly can here. Jackie writes in, my client always asks for any link that leaves their site to open in a new window. <laughs> oh, you're feeling this. I, I forgot know this I'm was not, in here. I love this question. I know I'm not the average web user, but personally, I prefer to manage this and uh, myself and find it offensive when a website would presume to know how I want to manage my windows and tabs. Uh, this, while this makes clients happy, is Target equals underscore blank actually good 
for users. Dun, dun. <laughs> when should we be using target equals underscore blank? It was it was Red. funny. It was just funny timing that it came up because I just heard like a mini a mini like Twitter argument. And in fact, once in a while, like if this ever comes up on Twitter, I usually um, I don't chime in. I just like to listen. I like to just soak in and see what people say to that. In the end of it, with two very smart people discussing it, they're just like, "Oh well, I guess it just comes down to taste." Or something, or like you know, we just we just agree to disagree on this one, you know, kind of thing. And it's like that's the moment where I just oh, I bite my tongue because I, I just don't want to be involved with the Twitter argument about this. It's just that the days of that being fun for me are over. Uh, but I, I much prefer to like to like really gather the thoughts on it, you know, and 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 kind of reference research if you can, and just really think it through, uh, and then blog it because you know that's what I do. Uh, and I did that in God. When is this? January fifteenth, two thousand fourteen. I I published an article that says when to use target blank. And I just dumped all my thinking out to it. And when I still go back and look at this article, which we'll put in the show notes, I still agree with everything that I said. I feel like there is, there's times to use it. There's times to not use it. There's things to think about that are related to it. And it's a little bit of a nuanced issue, but what it doesn't um, uh, 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 come down to is taste, I don't think. I, I think that's a bad reason. Uh, and I, I wrote in here, uh, a bad reason is just because you like it that way. If if the reason you're using target blank is just because like, you're just like, I just, I, I prefer it. I like to click on links and not have it uh, close the tab that I'm in. I'm like, eh. And the, you know, and the reason that I cite is because that that's a non-standard behavior, right? Like whether you like it or not, 99% of links on the internet are just links and they and they don't have that additional attribute on them so it is the default behavior not having target blanks links is the default behavior so you adding them to a few links on your page just cuz you like it is a, like a very bespoke weird thing that you're adding so like that's weird you know i would think any ux person out there would just be like you know should i go with the absolute standard behavior or should i just do a little tiny little bespoke difference just for my website yeah you know we uh, uh we added target equals blank to a project recently because the the page was kind of like a I don't know, like a portal or like a a a launcher you know it like you go to this to jump out to other things. Um, so it, it sort of made sense in that context and that's when we used it. Um, but in general, like I don't, yeah, I think, I think doing that is really bad. I don't know. I just, I just, and there's, there's a, there's a, there's some good reasons, you know, like I feel like a launcher page might be one of them, or if it's an RSS reader app and it's a website, you probably, you know, you're there to like go shoot off to other links. You're probably not trying to close your RSS reader kind of thing. Or if you're like, you know, we have links to like documentation stuff within the code pen editor, like to click on like, oh, what is a CSS preprocessor? You're probably not trying to leave the code pen editor. You're probably trying to get a little bit more information about the thing that I'm trying to click in here. You might have unsaved work and stuff like that. It just kind of makes sense to, to add that. There are kind of good reasons to use this, but like just on your Jekyll blog or whatever is uh, uh, doesn't seem like one to me. So I could go through another another uh, little one. Yeah, and that's the reason this is so red hot all the time is because clients can learn about it and know it, and then they're just like, oh, my God, all, all, all I have to do is ask my developer to add this little thing to links, and then users never leave my page. That seems very appealing, doesn't it? 
oh my God, they, they'll never leave our page. Anything they click doesn't matter. They're still on our page. Our time on page statistics are going to be amazing, you know? That's why, because it's such an easy change, I think, and, and, and clients like that idea that people never leave their site. Yeah, it's like a problem solved. There's also this problem like, solved. Yeah, they're on our webs. They oh, yep. done. Great. Sounds good. But. So I list that as a bad reason. It's just because you never want people to leave your page. I mean, I don't know. It's just not a good reason. And then some people are like, oh, no, I I know the answer to this. Why aren't you guys saying that the obvious answer to this? The obvious answer is that internal links should not have it, but external links, page that go to different pages, they should have it. I think a lot of people just, for some reason, that has entered their conscious as that is the official best, best practice for target equals blank links. Uh, I would refute that. It's not. A link is a link. It doesn't matter if it's internal, external. Uh, evidence being if you want to do this, you need some like kind of tricky JavaScript to get it done well, at all. And so I think a lot of people will say like, oh, you know, why not just use like control click or, you know, command click and, and just open up a new tab like that. And and that's how we all browse the web because we're all pro users, but not everyone knows that. My dad certainly does not know how to do like control click to open a new tab. So it's sort of like, I don't, but he probably does know how to use the back. button. He knows how to use the back button like and, and like a, something opening in a brand new window is, is also probably very like, like, Whoa, where'd my thing go to my dad? You know? Um, so I, I, that was trotted out in this argument too. Is the and uh, usually it's the the my mom thing too. It's just, it's just a little dangerous because it's kind of. I I use I use my dad because my mom is super good at computers. <laughs> my dad is not so good. Well, there you go. He's great though. Um, but yeah, so uh, yeah, I I yeah, I'm not gonna. I don't know. I, I it's tough. Do you want an infosec take on it, like a super security? privacy thing um there's a link uh matthias binans uh who we need to have on the show uh mm. like wrote an expose on uh the window dot opener object so when you you click a target equals blank you your browser sends a window dot opener object with it and in that has like the location kind of some of information, you know, maybe you're stashing like a username in the information really? in the, in the, you know, in that URL. So you can actually grift a lot of things from that thing and, and kind of start doing like malicious hacking and, and data mining and stuff like that from this opener object, which I don't even know why it's in HTML or JavaScript in the first place. But um, so if you're doing target equals blank, you should also be doing rel equals no opener, um, which isn't supported by every browser, but it is like a security feature um, kind of going forward. Okay. Um, and it's it's a weird like it's a very spec read. You're gonna be like read it and glaze over, but then like um, yeah. But well, the best practice is actually per- fairly simple. That's good stuff to know. You know, I would hope that browsers could move in and and help us with this. It, it, you know, like it's, it feels like um, Mike territory if. Uh, Mike Taylor stuff, you know, to be like, what if we removed window.opener? Like, what would actually happen to the web? What what does it break? You know, and if the answer is it breaks nothing, then just get rid of it. Yeah, no, that's that's a very Mike Taylor thing. Is <laughs> like, yeah. I remove this feature from a browser. What happens to the internet? So, the top 1,000 sites or whatever, well, 10,000, 1 million. So, 
So the and the trick here, another reason it's it's white hijacky is because of the you know you you're, you're literally said your clients want it you know and so it, just like nothing is just solid in stone if you if this is a moment where you can just make your clients happy and they really will be happy and just be all smiles and pay their bill on time you know I, I get that I'm, I yeah, I would never crap on somebody for for trying to to please their client and take their money you know but I I would I would try to defend if they're asking your opinion. Opinion and not being, in, in, you just you don't like risk losing them as a client or making bad blood by fighting them on this. Uh, I would I would advise to not just use it whenever you feel like it. There's also a, a, a shop talk show relevant thing too. Like when you're when you're on shop talk show and you're on an episode and you hit the play button. People have told us before, like, why don't you use Target equals Blake links? Because because then if I click a link to something in the show notes, the show stops because you've unloaded the page and the MP3 stops playing. We used to have a fancy little thing in there that would, when you hit play, it would apply Target Blake links to everything. And then when you hit stop, it would remove them. Just because I thought, like, I don't like Target equals blank generally, but that's a use case for it. So why don't we conditionally apply them? We removed it for some reason. I can't. Remember I why. probably broke it, but but that is a good you know time to use it. Just because it it's kind of a you know I don't know that's that's like somebody intentionally interacted and clicked the play button. So if audio dot is playing, you know don't don't open links in in this window. You know open it in a different window. It makes sense. All right. Next, next question comes from Omar Bravo. I understand atomic design, but how exactly is Pattern Lab, patternlab.io, which just hit version two, uh, supposed to be used? Is it like a living style guide or is it more like a CMS or is it more theme developer ish? Uh, looks awesome, but I'm not sure how to incorporate it in my workflow. Please discuss. Okay. Uh, I'm in the same boat, Omar. Not that I don't get it necessarily, but I can't. I can't explain it to you super duper duper eloquently because I have not spun up one of my own pattern lamps and, and did it yet. I honestly like pine for the for the reason to do that because I like get it and think it's really cool and I really want to try the Node version of it. I think there's a PHP version and a Node mm-hmm, version mm-hmm. of it, right? Uh, and they just they both seem cool, but I'm kind of attracted to trying out the node version of it for whatever reason. And it seems like it seems like I I, I just I want to do it, and it's very related to the next question too. But I think maybe Dave, you have yeah, I I developed up. in Pattern Lab back in like maybe pre version one even, um, but it was it was it's good. Um, so a, a pattern Pattern Lab is a tool that helps you like develop in an atomic design mindset. And this isn't to be confused with atomic CSS, which is a totally different thing. So like divorce that from, from our thought process here right now. Uh, But the pattern lab is, is kind of the, the tool to like building out a site using atomic design, which is Brad Frost trademarked, uh, copyrighted 2016 <laughs> uh, book thesis. Uh, it's kind of his style of, of kind of where you have, you know, things build up. You have atoms, which are kind of your colors and fonts. And then you have molecules, which are like your atoms build up into molecules, like buttons and whatever. And those build up into organisms, which is like, I don't know, like a card, you know, uh, a, it sounds like Omar kind of gets yeah. that though. He like understands the like the philosophy mm-hmm. of it. But how do you use so, it? 
Like not just like the thinking behind it, but the. the so when you when you use that thing, it, it's almost like like I said, almost like a prototyping development tool. Like because you can kind of build out your whole system and get into pages and templates, and you can even start hydrating it with real data. Like you you just drop in a JSON file of real data from your real website, and you can start spitting out, you know, basically the the real deal pattern lab um, or. And then it's a style guide. Then it's like, then it's like, we need to move. How do you then like? What do you do? Do you take the chunks that you've built in Patterlam and move them into production, or is it already production in some See, way? See, that's that's where it gets you know, like, tricky, and that's kind of I, I think <laughs> not to cross pitch podcast, but I was on the style guides podcast <laughs> with Anna and Brad, and uh, really th- that's kind of the holy grail is is finding a way to where it's like your living style guide or your, your kind of pattern lab, your style guide is, is also like up to date live, like, like in real time updating with your website or powering your website. And, and I would say, I don't know that pattern lab exactly one-to-one matches and, and griffs in. I think there are ways you can do it, but you know, pattern lab kind of wants a folder naming structure. It kind of, uh, it has this idea of you know atoms, molecules, and organisms, which you or your company may not grok with. But they they did add the ability in 2.0 to change all that, like just whatever you want to call it, call it whatever you want. So I think that was a cool move. Um, but I think it it is kind of like it is kind of more a development tool. It's kind of you build out your patterns, you test kind of the whole site in a kind of a working, squeezing prototype. There's tools like like a random viewport sizer. There's tools like um, you can like set breakpoints you're targeting. There's things you know you can annotate, comment, do all those things like in in the tool. I think it's a really good artifact for for that in terms of getting it live in your site. There's kind of some dependencies like do do, do you have a do you have like the templating engine can you use mustache in your live site or like did you modify pattern lab to use something else that you're using i think there's some questions there like like how do you get it in the live site and it i think honestly i think it may be a manual move at some point but i think in terms of designing and building and and vetting the 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 prototype of the new site i think you should do that in uh, you can do that in the the pattern lab great and you can build out your back end that spits out the right json like you can have that well it's kind of like this smart way of thinking that like if you go down that road you're probably not really going to regret it like ultimately you're going to have to take what you did in it and kind of move it out and that part is a little like fuzzy but it's not like that big of a deal you wrote some you wrote some css and some html at some point you can get it out yeah i mean it's not like you locked it in it's not like you're using like Brad's very specific preprocessor language, you know, it's not nothing like that, you know, and the templating language is, I think it's mustache by default, which is pretty, you know, pretty standard, pretty agnostic. Like if you're flipping it to even PHP or twig or uh, liquid or something, you, like it's going to be a pretty easy little switch, like, because all it does is basically if statements and includes, you know, so. Uh, that's not a hard thing. So, I, I mean, is it like 
production ready out of the box? I don't think so. Um, but I need to kind of look into 2.0 a little bit more, but I think like, and I, I think if you're building a site, like, and you, you know, somebody's not like breathing down your neck to like do it live, like, you know, you, you should just try this out. Like it's a, I found it to be an amazing way to build a, a, uh, build a style guide because you like can look at the whole page and then you can like zoom into one thing and you're just working on one component and then zoom out and see what happened and um it, it's pretty cool way to work okay well the, it's related to this next one so we might as well do the one here by samuel Nudek. uh what's the best way before you start working on a website to organize your layout keeping css in mind for example have a site I'm redesigning. The original designers were terrible at creating uniform headings. Uh, there were about 10 different heading styles. I want to know how you organize your CSS properties so that the style sheet is generally as small as possible, yet specific enough to capture elements like different headings across multiple pages. So I put that here on purpose, thinking that, like, isn't that isn't that the kind of thing that Pattern Lab is helpful at, or a style guide of any kind? Yeah, basically, like, um, Brad also talks about this idea of an interface inventory, which is really cool. It's like you basically, like, break up your whole website into chunks and, like, take screenshots and throw it in a keynote or whatever you want. Um, like, a Pattern Lab or whatever kind of homegrown style guide you're making would be really great because... I, if you're visualizing, if you can show your designers, hey, you have created like 10 different heading styles, like, do we need 10? Could two of them be merged? Like, this would really kind of help out just just chaos around the site. You know, I, I think, you know, we, anyone, we tend to like do really bespoke things where we're like, oh, I'm going to write this so awesome for this one page. And it's kind of like, that's cool on that page, but then somebody's going to try to use it on a different page and it doesn't quite work. And so they're going to make an 11th version of that's slightly different than the, the version number 10. So it's kind of like snowballs into chaos. So I think if you can like, kind of like that might be a whole, you know, couple few day week project to be like, Hey, we got to nail down our heading styles. Here's all 10 of them. How can we like normalize it? Uh, normalizing is probably the key word there. Just like, how do you bring it down? How do you bake it down to like something, uh, just, just something manageable? I mean, 10 heading styles is kind of a lot, but um, I usually, I think we have like three or four, but sometimes, you know, there's underlines, sometimes there's more padding or, uh, so you got to kind of think in those, those ways. Uh, yeah, it's the, you know, it sounds like part of what Samuel is saying here is the, the, the 10 different heading styles is that, you know, it's hard to say they they are terrible. He says they're terrible at creating uniform headings. So it sounds like the ten different ones is a problem. Uh, but then it's a little unclear. Like, do you want to Samuel? Do you trying to accommodate those ten styles, even though you think that's too many or that's terrible or whatever? Or are you trying to to rein that in? And I would think you're trying to rein that in a bit. And that it's really the not only the existence of the style guide, but the enforcing of it that's a big deal. And maybe just having the style guide is the ammunition you need to rein that in. Be like, listen, there's there's too many of these. We created this system. The system is really coherent and cohesive, and it makes the site look good and stuff. Uh, you know, here's a version of your page that falls within the style guide. What do you think of that? I think the sign off on that is probably uh, pretty easy to get. So, Samuel, look at Pattern Lab, look at it, and Dave. You I was just going to say, you know, HTML has six headings out of the box. 
So you know, 10 is maybe not so much, you know, like that's just a few mod- modifications of, of. Right. There's six like, like hierarchical mm-hmm. that, you know, they can, there's infinite really variants and look and combinations. All right. Well, Chris Burton. Let's go all the way to the top. Oh yeah. We could do that. Oh, one what too. I do. I think go ahead. You, you go. <laughs> Well, no, we can do Chris Burton's. This is a, this is a, a little bit older, but I was, you know, I did a little research for the show and was looking into it. So Chris writes, um, he he was asking about a specific technology that uh, I looked at it at the time. He wrote in this question that I hadn't looked at it since, and I looked today, and it seems like it's still kind of cooking. And the acronym for this project is HHV. M. Chris says, have you heard of HHVM, which is that.com? Would you consider running it with your current WordPress setup to improve the performance? Since 3.9, HHVM is fully supported, from my understanding. I think the combination of it and WordPress. The benchmarks seem pretty incredible. He links up uh, a couple of posts, uh, including one on the HHVM blog itself, specifically about WordPress. It's like, um, I don't even know what it is. I don't even know what HHVM stands for, and the homepage of the website doesn't tell you it's what it stands for. It stands for Hip Hop Virtual Machine, created by... Hip Hop? Hip Hop, really? Created by Facebook, mm-hmm. and it's based... I thought it... Oh, go ahead. Well, just like hack is one of the languages it supports. It's like a it's like a just-in-time compiler for the language hack, but also PHP. Yeah, so it takes your PHP and transpiles it into like C sharp or C and like a C binary, and then uh, so your code executes really really fast. So so it's basically like it transpiles, you know, just like. Babel transpiles your ES6 into ES5, and this transpiles your PHP into like C code that can run on the server uh, really, really quick. This has been a thing that's been around a long time. People have said that about, you know, Facebook's written in PHP, and then the next nerd goes, yeah, but it compiles to C first. That's this. That's this, yeah. That's this under the hood. Okay. And, and like, so, yes, it is going to be make your WordPress faster. However, like, you're introducing a pretty huge dependency, and, and unless you're kind of C-savvy, like, if it breaks, you're going to have a hard time digging yourself out of that. That would be my like personal. Yeah, that's opinion. the real question. Is like how set it and forget it is this? Is it like extremely set it and forget it? Because there is technologies that are like that a little bit. And if this is one of them, that's pretty cool. It doesn't like the the setup instructions even for WordPress don't seem particularly difficult. Yeah, I mean it's on what it's on like version two, so it might be pretty darn stable at this point. So. It looks pretty actively developed. And uh, the other thing is, like, I don't really... Uh, first, there's so many things. Like, like uh, what? which... There's a stack with websites, right? There's, like, your whole... You know, a lot of times we talk about performance and how, like, 80% of the performance of a website is on the front end anyway. This isn't going to help with that. So, like, that's that. And then, like, your, your, it's a WordPress site, so your, your data is still in MySQL. And if you're having, like, really bad queries and database problems, this isn't, that's not part of this stack either. Mm-hmm. That's- this is just the PHP. And it's like, is the PHP part of WordPress ever the slow part? I think it might be sometimes, but like that, this is just a small part of the overall stack. It's probably on, yeah, it's probably like the fourth. <laughs> suspect in in your performance problem right your your php environment because because really like what do we do with php in a wordpress it's go get the database uh do a for loop and then 
done, right? Like it's like tens of those, you know? So I think faster database is your, or like caching would be your number one, a fast front end, which is like minification and all that stuff. Um, uh, concat and minify everything and make it really nice and good. Yeah. Uh, then it's uh, database, like speeding up your database query server, like getting a good one. Like the the one you're probably using on shared hosting right. is and probably overloaded, you know. So like get like a- caching is such a big deal too, right? Like once like if you have really strong caching, whether it's nginx kind of reverse proxy stuff or one of the WordPress plugins that do it in different ways. What is Oh, like um, I think of them all, but I can think of the name of the plugins. But like, it's there's other ones. WTC that, Total Cache, and right that one's kind of like weirdly dead. Yeah, it's kind of weird like, and dead. And then there's, um, but they're a good company. And then wasn't there's another one too? Anyway, um, well, there's Super Cache and stuff. But even those plugins, they take advantage of different types of cache at this at the at the level. You have to like, are you like? They try different ones. You tell it which kind of caching you want it to do, and like the, they'll they're willing to do disk caching. So, for example, like you know, you visit a blog post and it renders the whole thing to HTML. It just saves that whole rendered HTML file like a Jekyll site would, yeah, kind of, and serves that up. But that's kind of like the worst kind. There's other kinds that are better for some reason uh, that don't have to read and write to disk. They're in memory or something. I don't know. Now we're talking about lots of stuff. And so it's like the the other thing that strikes me with this is like, do you ever hear anybody? Are we just in the wrong circles or what? But I like never hear anybody talking about this. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like, it weirds me out to, to give it a go when it's like, I think it, I think it would be like extreme performance or or like an enterprise situation, you know. But maybe you work in that, and you would rather experiment on your own blog before you uh, before you try it out on the the mothership. So that's you know that's a good thing to try and, and play with. But um, but I think this is the like this is the answer to can php scale and and it's like yes and we do the we compile it to c on the fly and that's wild but um that's kind of i don't know i mean what hey that's it's a cool trick but but it's also super aggressive but um i would want to i would just i would i would punt on it until my site was big enough that i was working with a server person and the server person was way into it and had some experience and knew that it was a good idea or really wanted to try it and knew how to back out of it or whatever. It's just a, it's not perfect for me as like mostly a front end person yeah. or whatever. I would be scared to try it. Well, and, and so like you have, uh, you have CSS tricks that experiences some kind of load and you can maybe like reduce the CPU load by having faster CPU processes. Um, However, I, I honestly suspect that it would help a little. <laughs> it probably would help a little, but it, I, I think still your your bottleneck is the like synchronous database call. Like it's just it has to go to the database. It has to search ten thousand posts, or you know, it has to search a million you know forum posts or whatever it is, and, and that just kind of bottlenecks it. So I think that's that's just how it goes. We should get New Relic as a sponsor because I feel like that's the kind of insight that you get from tools like New Relic that is very valuable to know. Where is your bottleneck? Oh, I'm using this tool called Skylight for day trip. It's a uh, it's Yehuda Cats and uh, Tom Dale. Yeah, Tom Dale. Oh, yeah, thing. I just yeah. want to own a piece of their soul, so it's great. Um, and, and it uh, uh, it's really good. It, it 
tell it's like a really nice looking nice ui version and, and of, it tells you your slow queries it's like here's your slow query here's how to fix it like basically like here's the ruby fix for that and it's really tuned to we ruby we used code pen too and i think we switched or maybe we're still using it or maybe we turn it on when we're like having a issue and then turn it off yeah yeah it's good for kind of like just hot analysis or like I want to fix a thing or, you know, or how am I doing? Because there's a, like a tiny bit of overhead to it, I think, unless it parses logs and then there wouldn't be, but I don't think so. I think you need a little, I think there's even a front end component. Mm. This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you in part by Media Temple. That's mediatemple.net. Hey, Media Temple has some news. Maybe you're familiar with one of their hosting plans called The Grid. Super powerful, super popular. They have some, uh, some, some changes to The Grid. For one thing, it got cheaper. For just $20 a month now, they have the Grid Personal Plan, 100 sites, 100 databases, 20 gigabytes of all SSD storage. That's awesome. Uh, you know, I was on the Grid for a long time. I feel like 100 sites is like a ton of sites. If you're just like a personal developer doing freelance stuff for people, managing your own sites, stuff, you can get it all on this package just for $20 a month, which is great. If you get anywhere near limiting or maxing that out, you can upgrade then to their Pro Plan plan, which is just $30 a month, and you get 5x all of that, 500 sites, 500 databases, 100 gigabytes of storage. You get one of them on a CDN, which is great. Put your most, you know, the one that needs the most speed on the CDN. There's one site of malware detection, automatic removal, which is great. A thousand email boxes and all this for just $30 a month on their pro plan. They have an agency plan as well for $150 a month that 5x is all that. So it's like really impressive power. Powerful, lots of hosting for very good prices. Uh, that's all at mediatemple.net. Uh, okay, let's see. I want to go to the top. The first one we have here is from Owen Modal, who writes in, nice webby name, by the way. Does responsive web design mean never choosing pixel lengths when formatting horizontally? If no, then where are pixel lengths appropriate? Are pixels right out when it comes to horizontal values in the world of responsive web design day. Never, never, or never say never. Never say never. <laughs> never, never say never. Um, you know, there, there's times you'll use pixels. I, like, I think if you were going by the yellow book, the yellow Bible, Ethan's yellow Bible, it would be, you know, you have fluid grids. And so everything sits in a fluid grid element, but you know, I think that's modernized to be like, you know, you could have like a static grid, a sidebar for ads or something that's 300 pixels wide, you know, um, and then a fluid column in between, you know, you can use pixels. However, like in general, if you see a pixel value in your responsive CSS, like in your design, it's a bit of a code smell. It's a little bit like, Oh, that might be a problem later. Like, like I, you know, I was just using a uh, somebody else's framework and it has, you know, it hard coded pixels. So when you like put it in like a grid four and you squeezed it down, it started going outside of the grid because the, the component width was wider than the uh, grid width. And so it just started all overlapping and messing up and looking ugly and dying. And I, you know, so that was a problem. Like somebody was got clever and just set a pixel width. And, you know, so I, I'm, in general, it's a code smell that you you're coding yourself into a hole that it it it's not going to work. But you know, whatever. Hey, I'm not your boss. 
I think of things like gutters are usually kind of pixel territory. Sometimes, you know, not always, but I there's some kind of like aestheticness to not having a percentage gutter because sometimes when you get things get really wide, even a finely calculated percentage is can get awkward. <laughs> Gutter territory, and just because, and like, what if, what about a grid in which that, like, one of the columns is just pixels, but the other ones are percentages, and it makes up the space. It's still responsive. It's just one of the columns you decided was fixed, so it's fixed. Maybe because of advertising reasons or just some aesthetic reasons of some kind. You know, it, never say never for sure. Yeah, you know? on all I can on day trip or even on shop talk, we have the little sidebar, and that's a fixed width thing. So there you go. We used it. Yeah. Hey. It's just a thing. But I, I would agree, Owen, that generally you're in percentage territory and use it up. Yeah. Or maybe you're not even, maybe percentages will feel old eventually and there'll be FR units when you're working with mm. grid or, you know, just the arbitrary units uh, of Flexbox, you know, ones and zeros and twos. and I like those. I'm embracing the fluid nature. Do you ever uh, drink a lot and start thinking about divs and spans, Chris? <laughs> and and just all the yeah, time, and, every day. And it's just how interesting that HTML is like div. It's a thing that's full wide. Span. It's a thing that's inline, and that's kind of all you need. That's kind of that describes the two. Uh, modalities. Uh, sorry, Owen. Modal, but it's the, the that, two modalities big... of web design. It's it's either a full width thing or a fixed or like a a size thing, an inline thing. I don't know. If only you could count on that from a from an HTML perspective. You know, like like it's you know I know what you mean, and that a div is block level and a span is an inline level, and there's you know there's some. <laughs> it's actually kind of more complicated than it even seems, but like you can't. If that was a guaranteed fact, then you could do smarter things with HTML minification, like when you could, it's acceptable to strip white space and stuff. But you can't because CSS can so easily make a span block uh, or make a div inline. Wouldn't that be? <sighs> yeah, it seems like I don't know. I'm just like, hey, I could, I could go back to the old div and span thing. Obviously, I want to keep like accessible things, like a paragraph's a paragraph, a button's a button, a link's a link. But I'm just like. Wow, it was really simple, and then we started adding widths and stuff, and ugh, we broke it. Ugh, we broke it. All right, next question. You want to keep going, Chris? What do you? Here we go. We got Jim Bijou writes in. Uh, I've had this nagging question about how to deal with compiled CSS when doing quick edits on sites already deployed. Here's my situation. Dun, dun. I feel like we need here's my situation and we need like situation room music or something <laughs> like dun, 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 dun. I recently joined an agency as a front end developer uh, as the noob in the office I get the task of performing minor updates to some of the existing client sites ooh that's tough okay many of the sites were built with SAS but don't always feel worth the time to set up a local environment just to add a couple of tweaks it's hard to know whether I should just append styles to an existing compiled style sheet or uh, if I also need to toss it in the SCSS file, uh, so as well, uh, so that my updates aren't overwritten later, uh, things get trickier when I need to make adjustments, uh, to something previously compiled. So I'm wondering, do you have any quick and dirty tips for making minor updates to compiled CSS in lieu of setting up a complete development environment for every site? 
I hate to be absolutist about this, Jen, but I really think that you're looking for a quick out here because you're like feeling like setting up a dev environment for every site is just like this monumental, bogus, I don't want to do it, overwhelming thing. And I think you're going to need to find a way to have that not feel so overwhelming to you. Like, is there some kind of, can you make little Docker containers for each site? Can you, you know, like I use, um, I don't know, I have a ton of development sites. It's not just like a, every day I wake up and have to set up my development environment. My development environment for all my sites is, you know, it's always a kind of a work in progress, but they're generally all ready to go. You know, I still use MAMP. In fact, I downloaded MAMP 4, like some new fancy MAMP that has like Nginx and Rails and stuff in it. It's pretty cool. Fancy MAMP. And it, I'll be right yeah. back. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it, my favorite feature of it is it quits when I quit it. Because <laughs> that's been a problem. What? Uh, uh, yeah, it's got it stuff. It's got uh, dynamic DNS and it's got Python and Perl and stuff in it, Ruby. Uh, it's cool, but that handles a lot of my dev environments for me. And that's just one tool of a million. There's so many like dev environments tool, Vagrant and stuff these days. There's got to be a way, Gemma. Like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tell you, don't just go run in and make a little quick fix to the CSS. You need a development environment where even if it's just a one-line change, you're making it, you're looking at the site on local, you can you can make an intelligent commit to Git that is the change, and it goes up, and there's some deployment process or whatever. You need some DevOps for this kind of thing. Don't just go in there and make a quick fix. It will get overridden later. It's just an inappropriate kind of way to handle it. So I hate to be absolutist about this, but you need a development environment for each, a local development environment for each site that you work on. Hmm. And if you if you, it shouldn't be that hard to get there. Like I don't I don't mean to be like I can't believe you don't already have this. It might be a big struggle to get there, but it's a worth it struggle. It's like it's a part of being a web developer today is this system, and I think it's worth leveling up on to get there. Yeah, I mean it, it's sort of you know tough because you know you're it's called quick edits, and your you know boss is like, can we just get this out today? And then you're like. Well, like I'd love to get it out today, but like I got to download WordPress, I got to, you know, like sync the database, I got to do the thing and I got to then push it up and I got to verify and test and click through. Um, I mean, that's a lot of and I I feel like it, it's a lot of work. Um one thing I could suggest, we we've, we've had this idea of the junk CSS and I think um even Harry Roberts was it who took it and kind of ran with it. Um but you could just oh yeah that's a that's a pretty good idea right have and have that maybe have a junk css not be sas compiled yeah and so have it's it, like a totally separate so you have your like main style.css and then you have mm-hmm. a junk css right after that it's going to add another blocking request that's super bad but like if that's the situation you're in like it might be the best sort of solution so um, like that might be, and then you just write straight CSS in this junk CSS and those are all overrides and like document the heck out of it. Uh, kind of what you're doing. Another thing I would say is like one thing you might want to do every time you do it is like, like make sure there's a readme for the project, like that you, you document how to set up this up because whoever comes after you or you know maybe you're like oh this site's just like this one site what did i do there okay boom i'll just like 
clone it just like this one. And so like add a readme of how to like build this and get it up going and how to deploy. I think that's kind of invaluable. I do that uh, for my coworkers and it, it works most of the time. Sometimes it fails, but like that helps me because it's like, I don't have to remember how I did it every time I can just like look at the readme and just be like, okay, this is what I did. So document how you do it. Uh, so that in future versions of yourself or somebody else can can be like, thank you, past Jim. That's very <laughs> that was very helpful. Uh, how to do this? So, and that you know, if you do the junk CSS route, document that. Then just say like, this is where we're doing it until we redesign it in Q fifteen twenty twelve or whatever. So that didn't make sense. Q Q four twenty twenty. That's when you're redesigning. So. <laughs> Uh, a lot of good advice there. I think you take 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 what you need from that gem, and good luck on your journey. Let's see how we do in here. We got we got some time. Yeah, here. got a little bit of time here. Uh, Keith Wyland writes in Wisconsin, gentlemen. Yeah, Hi, Keith. long time listener, friend of the show. Thanks, Keith. Uh, I do front end development in larger corporate setting, uh, and we're soon uh, soon we're redesigning our main website. Uh, for some time, it's going to be spent reworking browser support strategy. For many years, uh, we've used some percentage to determine levels of support. For example, IE9 has 10%. Uh, then both function uh, and design bugs are priority. Uh, below 10%, then only functional bugs. And below 3% would drop off our official support list. I kind of like that metric. Uh, what approach do you take to browser support? or device support. Are there any good write-ups or resources you could point me to uh, for browser support strategy in the world of responsive design? Did I read that well? I, so <laughs> Keith, you did. Okay, it's, Keith has, it's, I, I like, like, yeah, he's graded, works for a big corporate site and he's trying to figure out browsers. Yeah. Support. They have graded support. It's like 10% uh, or above you get like function and design bugs. 10% and below, sorry, we just don't have time to fix the design. You just get the functional bugs below 3%, like which is probably going to be like your safaris and edges and stuff. You're just like, sorry, we can't like devote time to it. Um, yeah, I, I, what, do, what do you think? I, I don't think this is terrible. I like it. I've me. never heard of it. No, and I actually think it's interesting that I've never heard of it talked that way, which is surprising because it seems like we talk about browser support all the time. But this idea that like you, there's some percentage of usage um, before you drop it, but there's not just drop it. There's like functional bugs, design bugs, and dropping it. And so, like if it's in this, if it's in this level of like an officially supported browser, you're dealing with both the functional bugs and the design bugs. And then there's like this middle ground territory where you're just like if there's a design bug, you skip it. But if it like prevents people from actually using the website, then you have to fix it. So it's this like middle ground territory that I've never heard talked about a lot. And I kind of like it. It sounds like for Keith, that's between three percent and ten percent. It also strikes me that three percent is like a little high to be totally dropped. That I, yeah, it's a little high. I I like. I think what I like is they drew a line. I, I, <laughs> but um, maybe it was a line of convenience. Like oh, IEH at three percent. That's our marker. So we're done. But um, I I I think one popular one is two versions behind. We only support the last two versions of a browser. I like that. I've been thinking about that lately. Um, I've been trying to think about like, cause, cause if you do the whole browser matrix testing, like the full, can I use like 
like like browser suite it man it's tough it it is like it is just so much work to figure out what what broke and what's gonna you know that that's a lot of device testing that slows down websites that makes websites cost more money that makes business people less happy that makes you less happy so like what's sometimes even developers even though I think that's a little sad. I think sometimes we whine a little too much about supporting browsers when it's our it's our literal job. Yeah, well, in in like in the thing about like you kind of have to go through that trash fire to like <laughs> to get better, you know, cuz you start learning like, "Oh, I can't just do uh add event listener for IEA because it doesn't have that." It's like whatever, is it add event or something? Um so it's those it's those sort of things like you pick up over time or and you you just kind of know like when you're writing code you're like yep that's gonna break in this thing so I'll add a little to do or just not care um, so you, I think you know I don't know there's been a lot of ta- talk about senior devs lately hasn't there Chris but uh, I think the mark of a senior dev would be somebody who knows the code they don't they're writing right now won't work in browser X. I think that's a good senior dev. They're just like, yeah, I just wrote this thing and it's just not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mind that as an as an additional requirement for a senior dev kind of thing. Yeah. It's like I don't know, having some kind of like spiritual awareness of code quality. Yeah, just just kind of this like <laughs> like I think somebody commented on that particular blog post. We should link it up, but it was a really thoughtful blog post by um, Brandon. I'm blanking on the, the Viking to Viking on Twitter, um, but it it, uh, it was a really thoughtful post. And then somebody in the comments was like, "I think a senior dev is somebody who writes no bugs," and I just was like is that for real? Like who writes no bugs? Like, I think it's like people who write bugs and know their bugs. I think that's the difference, you know? Like, yeah. Oh, certainly there's that. I mean, that's yeah. crazy. They probably, maybe they were joking and it was, they were just made, I don't they know. were bad at serious. word sarcasm. They wrote a whole <laughs> blog post about it. I, oh, anyway. wow. Um, so yeah. Uh, so I, I like the two versions behind. I just wrote a blog post. I'm going to like, my own blog post, but, um, I'm starting to think about like, we need a standard system of measurements when we make blog posts, you know, like how do we like, like when we talk about websites or whatever in blogs and talks at conferences, like, like we all kind of use vanity metrics, like, Oh, this loads in one second on Google fiber. It's wonderful. It's the best website ever. And it's like, but on three G it takes like 42 minutes to load or something. Uh, I think like we need to kind of like standardize things to like, you know, t- when we talk about websites, mm-hmm. it's in like specific, you're talking about performance, I'm talking about performance, but even just how we like, we, we measure, you know, the UX, the everything, like how we feel the site, uh, that like, I'm, I'm thinking like it should be on like 3g because that's kind of like a very common bandwidth signal in across the world, but also in America. And then it's also very similar to bad Wi-Fi, just things like taking a long time or something like that. You can throttle your uh, web. You heard it here first. Dave calls for 3G being the standard measurement for measuring a website's true performance. And then on top of that, running it on actual 
like hardware, like on an Android, I'd said a Nexus five, just because I think that's a very median device, but like running, hooking it up to your Chrome and like plugging it in and like running it on an actual device, because though like, you know, I think it's Benedict Evans who is like desktops are Intel processors and mobile is uh, ARM processors. So there's a whole different CPU architecture. There's GPU, like integrated graphics and things like that. You know, our, most of our computers are quad core supercomputers. And, uh, you know, these phones are just kind of like some of them are just getting by, like just, just enough electronics to be called a computer. Uh, so we need to kind of be aware of that when we're developing things. I have a Kindle. I just got a new Kindle and, uh, it's like, it has a web browser and it's brutal, man. But anyway, that's not saying every website needs to work on my Kindle, but it would be nice. But, um, and then I have like a whole other things. Like I think you should test in edge, test in Safari, test on Opera mini and test in Firefox just for weird things. Um, I outline all this in that post, but, um, but I think like we just kind of need to like normalize how we talk and think about websites. And I think it needs to be mobile first. You know, I, I know there are, you know, like, CodePen is always the great example. It's like most people on CodePen probably aren't mobile, but like in general, I think we talk about like, like we should talk about websites in a mobile context. So that's what I, I, I know I kind of took that. I like made that a you addressed box, that because but. this is a somewhat old question from Keith and he, he, uh, not old, but just it came in a while ago and he's kind of like focusing on this like word responsive design, which we still talk about, but it's starting to, it's not feel old, but feel a little bit like we don't have to frame everything that we talk about in like, what about topic X in responsive web design? You know, uh, like yeah. we, we've kind of stopped doing that. As a, <laughs> I hope we have. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, for me, it's just like, like, you know, I don't know if you saw that, uh, Alex Russell kind of explosion where he just was like, look, here's the deal. The web is in serious trouble and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Not to dismiss what he just said, though I just dismissed it. Um, it, you know, the data that Google has and everything, it, it, it's kind of like website, like time on site is decreasing and therefore, you know, like and time on site basically equals money. Like the amount of money people are going to put into a project, like it's the amount of attention it has. And so it's decreasing. Um, I personally have like questions about that data, but, um, it is from his perspective, like, like the web is in trouble if, if, you know, the attention goes down on the web, people will stop putting money into the web and therefore, you know, companies will start, stop updating their website. It's so much easier just to build another Android app or update the iPhone app. Um, I say that with like huge finger quotes, but, um, yeah, I think, I think if the web is in trouble, it's like we have to kind of Altogether, we have to really modernize and, and embrace the mobile as the default. And your your speed and performance and looks and whatever on desktop are, are just a bonus. Like you have to think of that as a bonus because we are like we've we've tipped over and we are like full on we are full on like mobile now. So that's that's my opinion, man. 
Uh, well said. Thanks for writing in, Keith. You know, we love these questions. People need to send us questions. I think if there's anybody out there, just assume that we have a lot of questions. We have some, but like, we really need good modern questions from y'all out there. Send us stuff. Send us stuff. And as a matter of fact, I should put into this, we have uh, one or two or a couple of like really good interview posts. And I know this is going to be weird. So many so people are going to gloss right over this. But if you're listening intently right now, you're driving down the highway. Thanks. Hi, current driver. Hey, good driving. Enjoying your commute. Nice car. Think about... <laughs> Do you have any stories about? Yeah, I like your car. Is this? Ooh, is that a little spot on your windshield? Is this Corinthian leather? <laughs> uh, <laughs> have you thought about the UX of your shifter? Mm. I just read an article about them. Um, well, and I hope you're being safe in your car. Uh, and also think about at uh, the last time you interviewed for a job. Was it was it interesting? Was it not interesting? There's got to be some kind of story that goes along with it, or the most interesting story that related to interviewing that you have. I'd love. Uh, to hear some more of those stories so we can kind of play them all together and kind of learn from each other's interviewing experience. Because I don't know, once in a while it strikes a nerve with people like uh, the state of interviewing in this industry. And we can learn from each other. So interviewing stories, record them, send them in. If you go to shoptalkshow.com slash ask, I think it is, there's like a link that's like if you want to send us audio, you just click, you go over to this website, you hit the record button, hit stop, it gives you a URL, send us the URL, we can play that on air. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Bill Thornton writes in. Oh, you got. No, me. I just send it in, please, because we want to get kind of a state of of interviews. So send it in. So. And if it's that great, if it's a question about something totally else entirely, great too. Cool. Uh, here's a. Well, maybe we'll do this one quick. Uh, uh, speaking of Dave's blog, which there's an ad on, uh, or going to CS Strix, where there's there's multiple ads. Do you have any recommendations for a quality ad network to insert ads on a low traffic site? It seems like all the quality networks I see are by invitation only, like Fusion Ads. I think that's true in that, well, I I don't think you're screwed, Bill. I'm just getting to it. But there are, like, like if you want to be on the deck, I don't think you just can be. You mm-hmm. know, like, I, I uh, we had CodePen on the d- deck for a minute. It was kind of awesome, and I love the deck. The deck is wonderful. Uh, um you can't just be on it. You have to, you know, be of a, you know, you have to know people essentially and like kind of have a high enough traffic site that it's worth it. And it's not because it's elitist. It's because they just, they don't have, you know, there's a very delicate incoming and outgoing balance of money with a network like that. And they need to make sure that new partners are on board. Cause once you're in, you're kind of in forever. There's not real trial periods and stuff. They need to make sure it's worth the time. I'm sure that's what it's like on fusion ads too. And, and there's also beyond that, there's some kind of like cachet to the sites and that, that they're appealing to certain advertisers, like look at the amazing sites we're on and stuff. But it's, th- those sites are much rarer than the, the easier to get on ones. And what comes to mind is like, did you try AdSense? I mean, that's like, seems to be the ad network that's powering the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, it's kind of like all, all ad companies end up using AdSense at some point, but, um, but you're going to get low. Like, it's like I did AdSense for, you know, when my blog wasn't super good and it was like nine cents, it was amazing. Uh, but you know, keep blogging. That's kind of the thing. Keep blogging. And then, you know, I don't know. I, I'm on carbon ads right now, which was fusion ads and then got like carbon ads. And, and I think I, you know, I make $11 a month, Chris, you know, (laughs) so for blogging and I'm not good at blogging. I don't blog every day. So that's actually kind of good. It's like, I can, I don't know, buy a six pack or something and enjoy that. Um, or, or a, 
12 packs of Starburst. I can buy 12 packs of Starburst and enjoy all of those. Um, so it's not nothing. Uh, you know, it, I, I like having ads. Um, I know people hate ads and that's probably a whole other show. Uh, but, um, I, I like having ads on my blog because it is kind of just like, it, it takes a little bit of like a reward, like, okay. Like it's like a positive incentive to keep blogging. Um, even though it's worth kind of nothing and I could probably find 10 bucks in my pockets uh, if I wanted to, but, uh, you know, it helps. It's nice. Um, but that's what carbon ads is one you have to kind of be invited into. And I think that's just, uh, you know, through speaking and whatever, I think I was asked to, to join that. Um, I think it's owned by buy, sell ads, which you can kind of, uh, apply to be a publisher. And I think it's a pretty low bar, uh, to get into there, but you know, I think it's kind of also affiliate programs aren't the worst chances in the world, kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. uh, like maybe your blog is really specifically about one really specific thing. Maybe make that a go. Usually, affiliate programs will kind of take anyway, other they'll very lightly vet you, but you know, they're kind of happy to have you in a way. So, that's a possibility. And there's even affiliate fed networks. The advantage there being that you know, Google AdSense is the wild west. You know, I think you might have a little bit of control, but not very much. You know, it just kind of what shows up shows up kind of thing because you're part of a global inventory of sites and sometimes that can be a little offensive to site owners although I wouldn't say that it's like the bottom of the barrel bottom of the barrel you know like mm-hmm. a, I don't know some people have pretty good success with AdSense so it kind of depends especially I think one of the things that they say and sell about a little bit and I'm absolutely not an expert in this stuff despite having <laughs> been a publisher for quite a while, is that uh, a site that has a large international audience is great because sometimes the ads that get run are for end up being for some product or service or something that's like super duper English speaking only or like that is US only or something like that, you know, because they just, I don't know, we're a US site and a lot of, we get a good amount of traffic from the US, but like not even the majority of traffic. So if you can have like native language ads running because it can tell that your IP ad addresses in India or whatever and you can run an Indian ad for, you know, a baker down the street from where you live in India like cuz that's how Google AdSense works that can be highly effective it can serve a lot more targeted ads than um, you know something like buy sell ads can do. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you maybe I don't yeah, I like the affiliate plan too. You can, you know, like an Amazon affiliate, you can be one of those iTunes affiliate, you can be one of those. So you can kind of, it's sort of like sneaking links in and I know people get mad about it, but you know, I don't know. There's auto weighted ways to do it too. You know, I'm, I, I don't even know, but I just guarantee this exists. Some kind of like WordPress plugin that, you know, you plug in your Amazon affiliate ID, it reads the content of your posts and like links up some words to relevant products from Amazon. I don't know. That seems a little gross. That, yeah. Not gross, but like that's just not my style exactly. But if you need to automate it, there will be options that you can. Or if just, you know, hand pick products. Do somehow do it really tastefully. Be like, literally, I literally read this book and I I literally endorse it, and here's an affiliate link to it. So if you buy it, I get a little kickback. You know that stuff tends to work on me sometimes. I follow. I think I read so many of those blogs, like Uncrate or uh, uh, stuff like that. It's just like, oh, cool thing. Kotki is oh yeah ripe with the affiliate links. You know, yeah. All it takes is selling one like display, and oh man, you're in Cheddar Town. You got you got a hundred bones headed your way. That's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Okay, good luck, Wade. That's the that's the idea. You're looking for ones that you don't need to uh, be a cool kid to get in on, and certainly there's some options there. 
That, all right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, be sure to star heart favorite uh, this show up in your podcatcher of choice uh, and tell people about it over at, uh, you know, the Twitters and follow us on Twitter at shop talk show. That's how people find out about the show. Uh, we really appreciate it. Depend on y'all to, uh, uh, to share the good news of the shop talk show. If you hate your job, head over to shop talk show.com slash jobs and get a brand new one. Hey everybody. We have an excellent job opening to tell you about. It's at Clock. Clock is a digital agency in uh, Kings Langley uh, in Hertfordshire in the United Kingdom. They're looking for a senior front-end developer, or as they put it, and I like this, a midweight uh, front-end developer. To join their highly experienced team, you'll be reporting to the you know the senior front-end uh, uh, person there, the lead. Uh, and, you know, they're looking for someone who's just like you. They're just like Shop Talk Show listeners. They're into semantic HTML and CSS. They're no JavaScript, like some jQuery. They're interested in UX and designing for the web. They're looking for someone with a couple years of experience, you know. They're into preprocessors. They're into CSS architecture. Uh, uh, they have some understanding of SEO, uh, Git and GitHub, those kind of things. You probably... Uh, wouldn't it just be a dream to be there working for a cool place like Clock? Here's a couple more things about Clock that I feel like is very important for you to know. They say right out here, 9 to 5 is dead. It's just about getting the job done. The office is open 24-7, and you just got to put 37 hours in on the internet, right? How fair is that? It's amazing. And you can kick off at 2 on Friday, even if you're, you know hanging around still then or whatever. Pretty, pretty sweet. Half day Fridays. They pay for your phone. You get half your birthday off. You get bonuses based on how well they're doing and what your salary is and stuff. It just looks like a wonderful place. Please go join them at Clock. We'll put a link in the show notes. All right. Chris, you uh, got anything else for us? I think the, all the all the advice that Dave just gave you about rating our site and 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 putting your jobs on the Shop Talk Show job board, which is also the CSS Tricks job board, which is also the Code Pen job board, which makes it reach lots and lots of people, is a very good idea. Until next time, shoptalkshow.com.